Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Thursday, January the 26, 2012. And this is episode 828 of the Survival Podcast. I have a special guest hanging on the line. Uh, we'll bring him on in just a moment. His name is Steve Solomon. He writes books on food gardening. He retired at 44 when he sold a mail-order seed business. Now lives in Australia. He grows most of their food year-round there. He's a political libertarian. And uh, he's working really hard to help people understand how to restore the nutrition of their food, not just to be able to grow your own food, but to be able to make sure that the soil is mineralized to the point where you actually gain nutrition from the food. And uh, he's been around a while, and he drifts a little bit here and there in this interview, but I'll tell you what, it's one of those things you want to listen for because every once in a while you'll hear something that will totally change your paradigm on the way that you've thought, and you'll hear some history about our own country uh, that I think you'll find really fascinating as far as, uh, just let's say, when we get to the part about uh, physicals for men prior to World War II, listen to that. There's going to be an awful big bombshell kind of drop with that one about what things were like in the 1940s in regards to nutrition and the food that was largely grown locally at the time. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Bulk Ammo is the place to get all of those common calibers of ammunition. And I'll tell you why you want to do it. One, absolutely lightning-fast shipping. Two, great service. Three, great pricing. Four, okay, four, the big one, no ammo, gun, overpriced club. So you got to have ammo, so you might as well get it where you can get it cheap with great service and great pricing. That's at BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, MERS-Radio, so M-U-R-S-Radio.com. MERS Radio is awesome because I have secondary communications on my property because I personally use uh, Rob Belville's stuff there. And uh, so we have these radios. So if I'm on the other end of the property or whatever, I take a radio. We have a base station in the house. Dorothy has another handheld she can use as well. And we can communicate. So if something goes on, I can get in touch with her. And we live in an area where cell service doesn't always work. So taking your cell phone when you're going down to the back end of the property, if something happens, somebody gets hurt or you need some help or you just want to communicate, May not work. My MERS radios will work. They have a range of about one mile, and my property's not quite that big. So uh, we have no problems with that. We also have motion detectors. So if someone or something is nosing around in the middle of the night, we'll hear an alert come across like alert sector one, alert sector two. Good information to have. So secondary communications and security combined in a single product that's affordable, easy to use, and I'll tell you what, you call Rob up and say, this is what I'm trying to do, and since he only handles a very small amount of equipment, he'll say, yep, this is what you need. He might say, yep, I got what you need. You need one more thing I don't ha handle, so go get it here. He'll say, no, nope, MERS isn't for you. That's great, isn't it, to deal with somebody that actually knows their product set? That's Rob Belville with MERS uh, Radio. So check him out. Remember, best way to find Rob uh, and uh, Bulk Ammo and all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. 
and uh, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Then you know you're dealing with a true sponsor, not a cheap imitator. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I just put out what might be one of the most important YouTube videos I've ever done on downward class migration. It went out this morning. Actually, it went out sometime late last night, but I put it out on the blog this morning. Please share that one with your friends. Please do me if I don't usually ask this, okay? Because I believe social media is a very democratic thing, and people choose what to forward, choose what to share. I'm asking you a favor. Please share this on your Facebook pages. Please retweet this. Please like it on, on YouTube. Please send it to other people. I think that it's important that we reach as many people as possible with the message of what's going wrong with our economy and what they can do about it. The video that I did is not like one of my ones where I'm out in the garden and it's all kind of, you know, uh, neat and all. It's, it's, it's done in an academic manner, but it needs to be done in an academic manner. People need to understand it and it corrects the misinformation about slipping from the classes being put out by the mainstream media. It, it actually explains how the class structure is sliding down and what it actually means to be at any of the levels of the class structure are actually falling. I think it's really important, and I would appreciate your help in getting this one out to some other folks. And remember, when you subscribe to me on YouTube, you can select an option where you'll get an email every time I put up a new video. We've got a lot of stuff planned coming real, real soon. Next up, remember, you can support the show with the Member Support Brigade. You do that, it's 20 cents an episode or 50 bucks a year. Just go to the site, click on Members, or click on the Members Brigade banner. You can sign up there using PayPal, or you can, at the bottom, choose to download a form and pay by check, uh, money order, cash, silver, uh, if you got something in trade, let me know. Uh, you can do it by mail order as well. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, uh, please email me before you join, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, which is my main email for everybody out there who wants to get in touch with me. And I will give you a special discount uh, in recognition of your service that will apply to your recurring membership. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we now have the uh, good fortune of having Mr. Steve Solomon, who uh, has a website called SoilAndHealth.org with us. He's here to talk to us about a bunch of really cool stuff uh, in the realm of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, growing your own food, and making sure you're eating high-quality nutrition as well, and probably a little bit about libertarian philosophy, which we, uh, which we talk about quite a bit around here anyway. So, hey, Steve, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thank you, Jack. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Hey, um, yeah, I, you know, I had actually never heard of your website, and uh, we got a request to get in touch with you, bring you on the show, and I took a look at it, and it's not like a real high popping graphic site or anything, but it's just so information rich, and it, it goes into all different types of things with growing your own food and nutrient, and it's really like a knowledge resource, and uh, then I, you know learned a little bit about you and found out you write books on food gardening, you retired at 44, you sold a mail-order seed business when you did that. Now you're living in Australia, and I thought it would be great to have you on uh, to talk about some of this stuff. One of the big things uh, that I you know, picked up by looking into your stuff, though, was that you know, you're kind of pointing out that organic food is not necessarily any more nutritious than you know, what you would call conventionally grown food. Uh, can you tell folks why that is? Oh, boy, you've asked just the right question. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Um, I've had, um, I want to warn you and the listeners uh, before we get into this, that I've had personal issues uh, with uh, the organic movement uh, for a long time. And uh, so I have a perhaps a slightly jaundiced uh, viewpoint uh, on it. So you're not going to get the usual from me. Uh, the the website that you mentioned, I 
I thought perhaps I maybe start out by telling you why I made that website. Sure, go ahead. There, there is a website that, uh, as a result of a, a thousand hours or two thousand hours of patiently scanning uh, a bunch of old books and putting them online, uh, which is even a bit of a risky thing to do because uh, the library's been on what somebody once called the bleeding edge of copyright law for a long time, uh, and uh, you know it's barely legal. <laughs> Okay. Uh, nobody has ever taken me to court uh, to establish it. Uh, I think that's because I've been careful to make sure that there was never enough money involved, uh, you know, to want to take me to court. Uh, but um, there's a lot of books on that website that, that are uh, not in the public domain, but they're hard to find and they're out of print. And together, it's it's not a random collection. The purpose of the website is is several, actually, uh, but the main one, the one concerning all the books about agriculture and gardening, uh, they're, they're there to show the history and development of the organic farming and gardening movement and show all of its warts. <laughs> uh, because it's, it's a bit shonky, is a word they use here in Australia. Uh, it's it, it, it's it's not as marvelous and sweet as you might think. Well, actually, uh, I don't think it's marvelous and sweet. That's why I was excited to get you on to talk about it. It's uh, it, to me, especially as the government sunk their claws deeper into it, it, it really kind of went into a decline. Well, it's yeah. Uh, you're talking about the more modern development. Actually, see, I'm going to offer you an opposite viewpoint. In a way. When the big boys started to use organics uh, to make money with, uh, they loosened up the production system and made it more realistic um, and actually improved the result. <laughs> okay, uh, Not that the organically grown food that's coming out of uh, Baja California and, and the California uh, valleys is necessarily all that great, uh, but at least... Organic growers now are able to soil balance. They can actually, they're allowed to use enough substances that J.I. Rodale would have called chemical fertilizers and of the devil, okay, uh, to actually bring in the minerals that they sometimes need to grow better food. Uh, you see, the, the old, the old organic system, uh, was really sold to the American people by a guy named J.I. Rodale. And uh, uh, J.I. was a, a peculiar man. He was a lot like me. <laughs> uh, uh, he, was a, he was not an agriculturalist. He didn't have a degree in science. Uh, he was a businessman uh, who had a little factory with his brother and made electrical switches called Rodale Electric. Uh, and he bought himself a, a farm. He became a gentleman farmer. Uh, and... Grew a garden. Uh, he was concerned with health issues. Uh, I just learned that Rodale uh, attended the 1938 lecture that McCarrison gave in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, that's a very famous event uh, in the world of natural medicine. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, Rodale, Rodale had some character problems, sort of like me. He was an autodidact. He much preferred to teach himself. Uh, and he was so confident in what he thought he learned that that he was willing to you know prescribe universally 
from an experience that he had on a farm in Emmaus, Pennsylvania. And for all these years, Rodale Press has been telling the world that what J.I. Rodale did on his farm in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, is what every organicist should do, and if they do that, they're on the side of the angels. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah, and it doesn't always work for everybody. Well, I would imagine not everybody has the exact same soil that they do in Pennsylvania or the same climate or the same uh, mineral components to that soil. Even if the soil's not been abused, there's just vast differences in soil quality from one region to the next, alone sometimes one, you know, one square block to the next. Absolutely. Now, J.I. Rodale um, was in that part of Pennsylvania. Um, there's some pretty good soil. And if he had a farm that had really good balanced soil on it, and then he grew a garden by concentrating the, you know, the nutrition in the organic matter produced by his farm, then he'd be bringing in balanced organic matter, you see, and he actually could create a relatively balanced mineral picture in his land by doing that. But if his farm had been out of balance, if it had been minerally short, then the vegetation would have also been sort of, you might say, perverted. And the more you concentrated that into a vegetable garden, the more your garden gets out of balance in the same sort of way that your land is. Uh, and most districts in the United States and, and Canada uh, do not have minerally balanced soil, especially in the east, uh, especially where the forests used to grow which is, you know, most of everything to the Mississippi River and then some. Um, so, I mean, the soil that's left there, that you know, after the forests were taken away, a forest soil is primarily a fungus-based soil where, like, a pasture uh, that's, that's heavily traveled by ruminants is heavily bacterial-based. So is there some, is that part of why that's the case? Uh, look, uh, when, you, when you make that distinction, uh, you're coming from uh, uh, a bunch of information that, that's coming out out of uh, Corvallis right now by, uh, what's that lady's name? <laughs> I'm having a senior moment. You know who I mean. Um, uh, the, the Australian woman who's there. Actually, uh, I, actually, it's not where I've gotten that information from. It is from Australia. That's uh, That I've picked up from Jeff Lawton uh, from the permaculture movement. Oh, anyway, he got it from there. Okay. There, there, there's a lady who's who's right now quite prominent uh, in the American scene, and she's doing research with compost tea, and uh, and she's made this distinction between fungal-based composts that are made out of woody material and bacterially-based composts, which are made out of uh, more like cellulose-like material, more like straw and that sort of thing. Uh, and when you get a woody compost, you get m more fungal activity. And then she says these have different effects in the soil and that different kinds of crops prefer to have either fungal or bacterial activity predominating in their soil. Uh, this may be so, uh, but uh, it's kind of like outside the area of my interest at the moment. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, so I haven't really looked into it deeply. So that's, I can't really answer your question. <laughs> Oh, that's okay. <laughs> a long way around say I don't know. Uh, the, uh, but it does raise a very interesting point for me that, that I may as well mention, and that, and that is that um, there's a profound desire uh, in people to find some way to get the land to produce for nothing. Um, America started out as a soil mining operation. Um, and uh, it did very successfully at that because uh, it had a lot of good soil to mine for, you know, uh, the, the 
a <laughs> better part of a century or more, uh, a couple of centuries actually before they completely ran out of new soil to mine. But but um, that desire to just be able to you know all you have to do is put in sweat and some seeds and you're supposed to harvest. You see. Uh, and the idea that you actually have to put in a lot of minerals and take responsibility for mineral balancing is something that people don't want. It, it, it's difficult. It requires science. You've got to use maths. You know, you've got to understand a bit of chemistry, uh, or at least deal with somebody who does. Uh, the 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 there is this other method of agriculture that I just invented a name for. So I'm writing a book right now about this, Jack. Uh, uh, the the book's going to be called something like uh, "Growing Nutrient Dense Food." I'm even thinking about the soil is health: colon growing nutrient dense food. Anyway, the book's about a third roughed out, and uh, I've been just dealing with things like J. A. Rodeo and the organic movement, and uh, and the objections that I'm going to get from people uh, who are trapped in the organic structure and believe it's the truth. Because uh, I'm going to have to say some things that are going to disagree with some of their beliefs. Uh, it, gee, I lost track, Jack. I'm getting to be an old. No, guy. that's okay. And I, I, but I think I think that you know maybe it even even so much you disagree. It's that it doesn't hold water everywhere. If you're somewhere that already has the nutrient balance in place, yeah, this stuff works. But if the nutrient balance is not in place, you have to do something to correct it. Yeah, there's. I don't think there's any way. Uh, to create uh, phosphorus if it isn't there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, now, there's some who do. There's some on this other side of things who want to think that they can manipulate the soil with artifice, with uh, a barrel of, uh, of bubbling uh, fermentation, uh, with stuff that you can kind of gather up out of the kitchen and out of the backyard and, and, and doesn't cost anything, you see. Uh, biodynamics is like that. It's a, it's a search for a kind of spiritual, mental self-sufficiency uh, and simplicity that may not really be possible in most cases. Uh, people forget that it, we were just you were just mentioning that soils are all different, and uh, the soils in the United States uh, intrinsically are not so good, uh, except in the prairies uh, and, and in isolated spots. I mean, uh, I think. The, probably the bluegrass country of, of uh, Kentucky has probably got some fertile soil, and there are some areas in Pennsylvania that have some fertile soil. Yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and on our place, you could grow anything with with almost no inputs whatsoever, as long as you did things smart to maintain the soil that you had, not lose it through erosion, and put organic matter back in, and That's you right. had incredible results. And when I first moved to Texas and tried to do things the same way, it didn't work out so well at first. It took a lot of refining to be able to get those types of repeatable results. Yeah. The soil you had in Pennsylvania, uh, Sir Albert Howard would have said that the annual increment of fertility, in other words, the, the, the amount of rock that actually dissolved every year and released its nutrient content, uh, that, uh, that release was sufficient, you see, to grow good crops. Uh, and the worst thing you might have had to do in Pennsylvania is to rest a field for a year in something that wasn't very demanding uh, or in some kind of green crop to let two years' worth of that increment build up in a piece of ground before you cashed it in. Correct. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, you could practice various kinds of crop rotation, and if you respected your soil and kept up the organic matter, that would go on forever. 
well, not forever. Eventually, the thing would erode down the sea level. But I mean, we're talking geologic time here. Sure. Yeah. So, so what as gardeners can we do today to grow more d- nutrient dense food? What What are the things people are not doing that they should be doing? Well, the first is a matter. First, you got to realize what you got to do, um, which is you have to first create a certain balance uh, and concentration of minerals in your soil. And the only way to do this uh, that I have any any respect for is by soil test. So you got to get a soil test, and uh, you got to get the right kind of soil test because some soil tests uh, are for the purpose of putting the absolute minimum of of cost into the ground and getting the absolute maximum of production out of it in exchange, uh, which is what most farmers are into. So these tests measure pretty much what's available in the water in the soil, those minerals that are dissolved in the soil solution. Uh, and they generally uh, recommend additions of rather small amounts of stuff. Uh, in fact, there's a whole bunch of people working, making a good living, telling farmers how to uh, do this with foliar, uh, because by foliar spraying you can greatly reduce the amount of material you have to put in the ground. And these materials are getting ever more costly. So um, that type of, of approach is not for the home gardener. Okay. What we need to do is we need to remineralize our soil. We need to put in, uh, in as much in the way of minerals as the soil can make use of uh, and bring it into a specific kind of mineral balance where the, the various uh, elements uh, have a specific relationship to each other. Now, there, there's... A certain amount of disagreement about the fine points of what this balance is. I mean, a couple of percent one way or another. Uh, but you have to keep in mind when you when you read about this sort of thing that advising farmers is one of the few areas where a person can make a good living that doesn't require a license. There is no licensing board for being a farm advisor. You don't have to pass. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in anything. Uh, nobody can say you can't do it. It's a matter between you and the farmer. It's a very libertarian thing still, in that particular area of economics. I don't know why the powers that be have allowed that to happen, except that maybe they figure that because they control all the agricultural universities, uh, that it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I think they just think it's irrelevant that they have so much of a, of a stranglehold on conventional agriculture anyway, they could care less who runs around and tells a farmer what to do with himself because they're concerned about selling the seed, the the, the, the inputs, right? And, right? and and they're concerned with patenting life forms and, and genetic modification and you, you, giving you food you can spray with a herbicide as though that's not going to be damaging. So since they've got that locked up, they don't. I don't think they really care. I, I imagine that you speak with some of these people sometimes. Uh, you know. Uh, have you ever talked with Arden Anderson or Ken Kesey or or uh, 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 no? Uh, we we really stick more to the 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 natural methods, and we stick to things like we talk about genetic modification from a standpoint of why it's bad. I've had Joel Salatin on the the, the uh, show. He's probably the biggest name in in you know in the agricultural world that I've had on. But that's yeah. we're usually sticking on that side of things. So you're in like friendly waters here. Oh yeah, I know that. Thank you. <laughs> I feel safe. Uh, anyway, um, uh, 
there are a lot of farm advisors, uh, and they're looking to make a good name for themselves. And they often get involved in disagreements about whether it should be 62% or 65%. <laughs> I'm better than you are sort of stuff. I've got the right answer better than anybody, so pay me the money. Uh, and they charge per acre. You know, go out to a farm, sample the soil, run some soil tests, and tell the farmer what to do. And uh, they often make the farmer a lot of money and do a good job. Uh, anyway... Uh, I don't have the uh, ability to tell you that it should be 62% or 65% or 68%. I'd need a lifetime of experience doing this work to be able to make that call. But I can tell you that it doesn't matter all that much. And, <laughs> and you could probably also tell us that zero is not good. Right? Yeah, well, we have zero calcium, that's bad. And we can fidget over what percent it needs to be, but we know zero is not good or, or one. No, in fact... We, we do know pretty well that somewhere between 62 and 68 percent calcium is where we want to be. And we know, we know that around 15 percent magnesium is where we want to be. And that calcium plus magnesium should equal about 80 percent of everything that's in the soil on, on the clay. Uh, we know that. That everybody agrees about that. Uh, and they all agree pretty much that, that there should be about 4 percent potassium. Uh, and about 2% sodium. Uh, I did a very strange thing in my garden this year. I actually went out and put some agricultural salt out on my ground. <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> it needed sodium. Okay. It's, it's the strangest thing to do that. Uh, but it, uh, things are going great. The uh, Anyway, that's the first thing that gardeners need to do, is they need to take responsibility for dealing with the mineral content of their soil. Uh, then... Then we can amend soil uh, to be balanced uh, using only organically approved materials, things that are on that that official list. You know, if that's important to somebody, uh, you can easily stay within that list effectively, except in one case that I know of so far, and that's if you have an excess of magnesium in your soil. Uh, and so, not a deficiency, but an excess. An excess, okay. because if you need sulfur or if you need potassium, okay, um, uh, the only way that you can get it naturally uh, in a sort of comfortable way is by using a kind of rock uh, that I think is called langvinite. Uh, it's basically ground-up stalactites that come out of a big cave somewhere in, in New Mexico, um, and it's a potassium... Uh, magnesium sulfate. It's, now, when I had some a long time ago, it was a sort of a soft pink rock ground up to about 10 screen, and it broke down fairly quickly in the soil. Uh, but if you've got an excess of magnesium, you can't use that. And the only way that you can actually get uh, potassium uh, or copper or zinc or manganese effectively into the soil is by using the sulfate salt. And... Uh, this is now allowable for organics. It's on the list. So okay. we can use potassium sulfate, manganese sulfate, copper sulfate, zinc sulfate, no problem. Okay. And, and without it, without those materials, uh, it would be much more awkward to, to try to remineralize those elements. Uh, but other than that, you know, we can operate with, you know, the usual stuff and achieve a different goal. It's a matter of starting out with a goal and knowing where you're going. Uh, so 
the first thing we want to do is we want to put push the soil in the direction of having that particular mineral profile. Uh, the amazing things happen when you get there. Uh, one of them is that the soil actually seems to build organic matter all by itself. Um, it's almost like you so much better feed the entire microsystem, all the ecology in the soil, that uh, the bodies of all those dead bacteria turn into organic, you know, turn into humans. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I've always looked at soil almost like it's it's more it, when it's good soil, it's almost more like it's a lake. It, it'll hold water, and there's a, a massive amount of life in there. If we look at something like in a good quality forest soil, um, there's like 600 kilometers of fungal hyphae in a cubic meter of soil. And anything we can do to in, you know encourage that life has got to improve everything. Yeah. Now let me tell you that the most important single thing. Oh, this is good because this will also lead into what's one of the things that's wrong with organics and how people get messed up by not understanding what organics is all about. Uh, the the texture of the soil, its compaction, the amount of air in it. You probably think, you, almost everybody listening to me who, who gardens or farms probably thinks that if you put organic matter into the soil, that's what makes it loose. And if the soil gets hard, it's because it's lacking in organic matter. And we resolve hardness and soil compaction by upping the organic matter content. I always thought that. Uh, two years ago, uh, I run a, uh, a chat group uh, on the Internet called Soil and Health at Yahoo. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was mentioning that I was puzzled about my garden because the soil seemed harder than it should have been. I put in a fair amount of organic matter. It was a clay loam soil. Uh, uh, it's, it's, I have a little bit of probably the best farm soil on the island of Tasmania, uh, which is why I live in this suburb. <laughs> Can you imagine driving by an empty building block of Class One agricultural ground? <laughs> yeah. And saying, I'm going to live there. <laughs> That's what I did. Uh, and then Annie and I bought the, the next block to it that was empty. So I've got a quarter acre building block. That's my vegetable garden. It's a $100,000 garden. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> the time value of that garden is more than the price of the vegetables. It doesn't matter. Uh, the, um, the, uh, on my forum, a guy named Michael Estera, who hadn't been too active, uh, said to me, you probably got too much magnesium. He said, uh, when the magnesium ratio uh, exceeds, uh, you know, about 7 to 1 calcium in a soil with a bit of clay, he says it gets really hard and compact. He says, why don't you stop putting in the magnesium? Because he knew I use a fertilizer mix routinely that has dolomite lime in it, that has magnesium in it. So uh, I left the dolomite out of my fertilizer mix. Next year, the soil is loose. Hmm. <laughs> it feels like a sponge. Huh. You know? I said, Michael, that's really wonderful. He said, why don't you read my book, The Ideal Soil? <laughs> wow. This is, an, this is an Internet book. Uh, and so I did and uh, got a soil test. And Michael gave me a freebie. He actually interpreted the soil test for me. And this spring, I started out uh, by remineralizing per that system. And I have had the most incredible things happen uh, since I did that. I thought I was really smart, Jack. I thought I had it all figured out. I thought for the last 15, 20 years, I knew just what to do. 
And I was telling people, just like J.I. Rodale, sure. just what to do, okay? Garden writers, we do that. Um, uh, I think we've all writers, had those moments, I mean, because when you do something and you get great results, and then you become convinced that's what gives great results, and I think what it is is we all eventually find what works where we're at. And then I think right. we all get some humility once in a while because we, you know, we go, everything's going great and you get up with compacted soil or some other type of a problem and then you have to sort it out, so to speak. Yeah, that's a rare garden writer who has the experience or the good luck to realize their own limitations. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I try to keep that in mind, uh, but you know, look what I just did, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, so, in spite of the fact that I had been running this quarter-acre building block garden uh, on exactly what my garden books tell people to do, which is to make something called complete organic fertilizer, which is a mixture of seed meal and lime and kelp meal uh, and some kind of phosphate rock of one form or another, and um, it, it always grew the plants really good where I came from in Oregon. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and it did really good here in Tasmania, except when I ran that soil test, after running it on this soil, particularly for four years, I found out that I was desperately short potassium, I was desperately short phosphorus, I was really short uh, uh, copper and zinc and sulfur. And at the same time, you ended up with an excess of magnesium. And an excess of magnesium, that's right. And <laughs> <laughs> and and an excess of calcium. Uh, I had actually overlined. Uh, the complete organic fertilizer had a minimal amount of lime in it. I thought it wasn't enough to really shift the soil pH too much. Uh, it worked out to something like uh, a half a ton of ag lime per acre per year. You wouldn't think that that would cause a problem. Uh, uh, where I came from in Oregon, uh, you lost 5,500 pounds of calcium per year just from leaching in the average soil. Sure. So I figured, well, I could put in 500 pounds of calcium per year and just replace what leached, you know, and that would never get anybody in trouble, and it would feed the plants the calcium they needed. Worked really good for decades. Out here, the soils are different. I didn't realize that I was living in a place where the soils were not endowed with a lot of, cal of, of potassium. Uh, the soils in, in Oregon and Washington uh, are all, every one of them, uh, ex well, not every one, almost every one, 95% of all the, the soils in, in those two states west of the Cascades uh, are high potassium soils. Okay. Uh, and your problem there is building up surpluses of potassium. And the usual organic gardening practice there, which is in bringing in lots of organic matter from the surrounding areas, you're bringing in huge excesses of potassium. And before long, it's instead of being overlimed and having nothing but calcium on your soil, you've got nothing but potassium on your soil. And then all kinds of bad things happen, too. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, th this is what happened to me, by the way. Uh, and and uh, this is... This is, I know I'm wandering, and I hope I, I'm getting old, and I may not ever get back to this original thing we were talking about. But you try and help me, Jack. Okay. The uh, the I started out in Oregon uh, as a homesteader with a typical uh, five thousand, six thousand square foot garden inside of a deer fence, uh, trying to produce a lot of my own food on five acres of worn out ground in the in the coast range, and then. 
serendipity uh, led me to go into the seed business. And my character demanded that I grow as a, a trials ground. Uh, I don't see how you can be in a seed business without actually running a trials ground. Makes you gotta sense. Look at, you got to look at what you're selling. And you got to look at what's available out there to, to distribute. You got to you got to write your catalog based on what you really see in front of you. Uh, I think the good seed companies do that. You know, when I look at somebody like Baker Creek, they trial everything that they do, and and I yeah. think that makes me much more comfortable in doing business with them. Exactly. When I went into the seed business, the model that I used was Rob Johnson at Johnny Selected Seeds. Okay. Yeah. Had been in had been in business for seven years when I went into business. Uh, and uh, I just modeled myself after him. In fact, he helped me uh, because I was dealing in a territory that his trials didn't really cover properly. And he knew that we needed a regional seed company in Tas Cascadia, just like the people in the northern tier states in the United States needed a regional seed company. Sure. So he helped me. He actually, we spent a lot of hours on the telephone. Anyway, uh, what happened to me was I put in a half-acre trial ground, and ran out of money huh. and didn't know how to run the business. And it took a couple of years before I actually started to make a little money. Uh, and I lived below the poverty line uh, with very little savings left uh, for two years while I bootstrapped that business into something that worked. And the thing that allowed me to do it was twofold. One, I had a half an acre of vegetables growing in the, down there that I didn't even intend to eat, uh, that I could eat. And sure. two, I was developing a relationship with a lady named Dr. Isabel Moser, who was a naturopath. And she believed that eating a lot of raw vegetables was good for your health. So I figured, well, if circumstances are going to force me to eat an awful lot of raw vegetables, it'll be good for me. Sure. <laughs> so I didn't have any protest. And for the next couple of years, uh, probably 80, 85% of all the calories that I ate came off of my own trials ground. Fair enough. And then Isabel moved in with me. And all of hers came off of that trials ground. And then my teeth started to get loose. <laughs> and Isabel's fingernails started to get soft. And we didn't feel very good. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And uh, it got to be 1984, and I'd been in the seed business for, f this would be the fourth or the fifth catalog, and I was starting to make a bit of money. And I had a partner. And uh, so after the trials were planted in June uh, and they, they were growing, I left them in, in the hands of my partner, and Isabel and I and her 13-year-old daughter, Sale, went off to Suva, Fiji, and we rented an apartment in the city of Suva, and we went swimming every day in the, swimming, in the big municipal Olympic Lake swimming pool, and we shopped in the local market there and bought fruit and vegetables and just relaxed. The most amazing thing happened. In a few months, Isabel's fingernails got hard. My teeth got tight. We had good energy, and we felt wonderful. Why? Was it just, you know, the rest, the lack of stress? The business had been getting awfully stressful. Uh, I didn't want a big business, you know. I just wanted uh, to make $1,500 a month and pay my rates. And here I had six, seven, eight employees, and, you know, was uh, everybody knew who I was. <laughs> and and uh, uh, it was a lot of stuff going on in that business, interpersonal stuff and business relations, and I didn't really want it. So there I was, resting up, feeling better. And we said, what is it about these vegetables? And we found out that almost all the fruit and vegetables in the market in Suva came from one valley, uh, called the Singatoka River Valley, which was about an hour's drive.
So I rang up, booked an appointment with uh, the ag guys. They had a little research station up in the Singatoka and rented a car one day and we went up there, saw the valley, talked to the men at the, you know, at the research farm and fell into a state of lust. Hmm. Uh, I wanted some of that soil in the worst way. I've never seen a place like that before. Uh, I, I was spent months figuring how could I move here and get a piece of land and, and live there. The Singatoka Valley is this little narrow river valley. It's it's only a kilometer wide at most, uh, uh, maybe 15 miles long, uh, uh, and then it goes up into the mountains. And in those mountains are huge deposits of ultra basic igneous rock, and and hugely mineralized rock, and uh, heavy black rock full of all plant nutrients you could ever want. Uh, Every couple of years is a hurricane, and the Singatoka River dumps a whole lot of silt on the valley floor. No farmer in the valley has ever used fertilizer for the last 50 years. Mm. What happens is they have a two-season, uh, two-climate year. Um, there's the cool season when they grow vegetables, uh, and then it gets hot and humid and rainy, and the vegetables all die of disease, and grasses and weeds take over the field, and they grow waist-high. Uh, and then when the, the heat ends and it starts to dry out, they plow in that vegetation, and that's the only source of organic matter that those soils get. It's grown on site. Every year they get a big green manure crop for half the year, and they get no fertilizer. They just get those mineral particles, and if you ever look into ultra-basic igneous rock, you can imagine what the soil is like. Uh, it's beyond the Nile River. <laughs> I mean, it's the best thing you can ever imagine. It's the most beautiful loam soil, black, fertile. Anyhow, uh, we ate off of that stuff for six months and ended up feeling really good. Came back to Oregon, uh, went back to eating the trials as usual, uh, and within a year, my teeth were getting loose again. Isabel's fingernails were getting soft, and and I realized that I had something to learn. And I imagine the food looked good. The results from a standpoint of a yield were probably pretty good off your trials, but the food was missing the nutrient density. That's correct. It looked beautiful. It conformed to all the rules of organic growing. Uh, this, you would think I spared nothing in building up that soil. <laughs> I had little choice. I mean, there was no topsoil on that five acres. They had wrecked it growing winter wheat, uh, and it was a sloping piece of ground. Uh, when you went to the property line, uh, the old fence to the next field was still there, and the next field was actually a piece of old-growth Douglas fir on about four acres that somebody had never cut in all those years. When you stepped up, Onto that next piece of land, you stepped up a foot, right at the fence line. That's a lot of erosion. <laughs> That's a lot of erosion. A foot of topsoil had gone down the Sayuslaw River over the course of, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And, of course, when it got to the point that it wouldn't grow grain anymore, they grew hay. And when it got to the point that the hay wasn't lush enough to even afford to bale it, you couldn't cut and bale it for what it was worth. Then they divided it up into five-acre parcels and sold it to idiots from the country, from the city, like me. Sure. You know, who thought, oh, gee, beautiful green land. I've read all the organic gardening books. I know that I can take any old clay pit or gravel heap and I can turn it into a garden of eaten if I just put in enough compost. <laughs> you ever heard that before? Oh, absolutely. 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 And absolutely. I mean, 
What I want to ask you about is how important do you think mulch is to all of these equations as well? Because earlier you were talking about soil structure, and I haven't found anything that will contribute to structure, that friability, the crumbly structure, the way that using mulch does. I mean, everything I have is mulched under you know six inches to a foot of mulch. Okay, let me ask you this question. Where do you live? Uh, Arkansas. Gee, how cold does it get in the winter? You may have just blown my main theory. Because um, we could like this winter; it's not gotten cold at all. Last winter, we had days down in five, seven degree days. I mean, it, it, it varies. Does your soil freeze in the winter? No. Okay. No, we never get where the soils like. Like you go, if you went out and tried to put a, you might get the very, very top of it on a very cold day, but it doesn't last. It's not a permafrost type situation or anything. Well, you know, I've. I've speculated about mulching a lot, and I've written about it a lot. It's all speculative because I've never succeeded at it. Hmm. Um, I had a garden in Southern California. It was my first garden on very good soil uh, in the San Fernando Valley, and I tried mulching, and uh, it completely failed. Uh, what happened was is that the population of primary decomposers built up under that mulch to such a high level uh, that they started eating every seedling that I put in the ground. Uh, <laughs> it was almost like having a million chickens in your garden at the same time. Sure. Uh, and it was impossible. So I raked up all the mulch and put it in a compost heap. It took about a year for that to develop. <laughs> okay? The, see, uh, and so I, I raked it all up, put it in a compost heap, and within a couple of weeks, all those primary decomposers were gone, and my garden was fine. I said, well, it must be too hot here in Southern California. So then I went to Oregon, and I because I love the idea of mulching. I had sure. Roosevelt's books, and they all made a lot of sense. So uh, I, as soon as I got to Oregon, I went out and I found a whole bunch of spoiled hay. Uh, didn't cost much, uh, and I mulched my garden. Next year, I was just overwhelmed with primary decomposers, earwigs, sow bugs. Uh. Really? <laughs> Now, see, I use primarily woody material for mulch. I, you know, I uh, use a chipper shredder, and we have uh, five acres of mountain land, and it's really varied in composition. So there could be some pine, there could be some hickory trimming, there could be some oak, there could be some poplar, some tulupo, I mean, some sumac. It's, 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 it's a huge variation. And to me, I, I think that probably helps from a mineral standpoint because different plants accumulate and bioaccumulate different minerals. Have you done a soil test? I Actually, uh, the only thing I've done is tested pH and NPK content. I've never done a deep I, mineral analysis. Okay, I probably need make you, to do that. I'm going to make you an offer. Okay. okay? Um, there's a, a soil lab in the United States called Logan Labs. Um, they are one of the original labs connected with William Albrecht and, and that good sense soil management idea. Uh, they only charge $20 for a standard soil test. Okay. If you're, if you're really skint, as they say down here, and short of money, you could use Brookside Labs. It only charges $15 for the same test. Uh, it's just that I like Logan's report form a little better. I don't know anything, I don't know anything about the accuracy of either one, but, uh, anyway, they both have a really good reputation. Uh, you go to their website, read the information about how to pull a sample, uh, 
And okay. Send a, send a soil sample. Send it to me by email, the result. Okay. And, and I'll have a conversation with you about it and give you a specific soil prescription. I'm doing this uh, for free uh, these days simply because I'm learning an awful lot by doing it. Uh, and it, it actually helps me write the book I'm writing because I'm trying to empower people sure. to be able to do this for themselves. And, yeah, and find a, a simple, safe way that an amateur without a lot of experience under their belt can mend their own garden without making any serious mistakes. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that, too. I mean, I've always done some really basic stuff with whatever I'm... Because I do kind of two different things. I do, I do permaculture, so there's a, the multi-zone approach. So something that's in a zone one that's worked on very heavily is heavily mulched and heavily amended and, and fussed with. And the other stuff that's further out in the zone is pretty much it's rough mulch and it's, it's left to itself. Um, so I have different profiles. Some of it's had a lot of work done. Some of it is just what it is. Um, what you might want to you might want to take a sample at twenty dollars a sample. I don't. By the way, it cost it cost me a hundred and three dollars a sample. Sure. In Australia, uh, we have a lot of social legislation here, and so uh, having employees is extremely expensive. Sure. <laughs> and sure. Everything costs a lot more. I'm paying I'm paying everybody's social benefits every time I spend a dollar anyplace. Yeah, I understand uh, that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the money's no big issue. I'm just thinking that, like, you know, my typical standpoint for amendments in a garden bed would be, you know, we would always use some green sand and some lava sand because I know there's mineral content there. I don't, I'm not a soil scientist. I don't know exactly what that mineral spectrum is, but I know that I've always gotten better quality food when I've made amendments like that. Uh, calcium, uh, you know, adding crushed uh, oyster shell or something like that. Um, but I really have never done it from a standpoint of trying to balance it out. I've never even really thought about it, I guess, until I've gotten you here on the show. Well, what you're doing is that you are practicing uh, a system of agriculture that was basically developed by J.I. Rodale out of his character, you might say, uh, predispositions, that I have developed an acronym for. I call it the SAMOA system. Okay. S-A-M-O-A. Uh and it's a small a, the first a, capital S, small a, and then capital M-O-A, okay, like the island of Samoa. And it, it means, forget the little a, it means the shit method of agriculture. Okay. Okay. Now, when you practice the shit method of agriculture, what you do is you put a lot of shit in the soil, and it makes things grow better. <laughs> and and uh, and that's all that you've got to do. And if it don't grow better enough, you put in Samoa. I got you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now that's what you've been doing. Sure. And yeah. And sometimes, if your surrounding material is right and you don't make a big mistake, it works. Uh, in the old days, okay, before before 1900, uh, it was the best we knew how to do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's what agriculture was, is you basically, everybody practiced the shit method of agriculture. Uh, waste products were extremely valuable. That's what made the plants grow better. <laughs> and, and that's all we had, you know. Uh, there was a little bit of chemical fertilizer after about 1850, but it wasn't very much used. Uh, and, and most farmers thought it was just a ripoff. Uh, so, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing your test. Uh, do, you, do you realize that 
when when you grow woody vegetation in a uh, in a uh, humid climate, and southeast I don't know about Arkansas, but southeast Missouri the Ozarks get uh, about 80 inches of rainfall. Um, that that's a highly leached soil, and it's going to be high in potassium and low in everything else. It might not even be high in potassium anymore. I don't know. It, it, my 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 native soil is not really high in anything, it, 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 but has an okay profile depending on what I'm dealing with. So I'm dealing with the area that the the guy that put the house in clear cut. Uh, to make you know basically uh, a, a weed lawn, it, it's pretty poor. If I go into the forest and uh, where I'm cutting maybe a, a glade in and, and adding fruit trees and stuff like that in, a, in an opening in an edge situation, that soil's really nice because it's it's was timbered maybe 70 years ago, so it's, it's fairly old forest growth now, and it's had a lot you know 70 years of of leaves and stuff just naturally falling and building up. So it's so, yep. And then this, yeah. in my beds, where I've actually built beds, is you know there's tremendous amounts of compost in there because I have a compost facility where I can get it for free if I self-load. So it's really kind of all over the place. Yeah, well, I find it very interesting to see that. Uh, the, you see, here's a classic mistake that happens to people who go in homestead like you are doing. Um, you know, they, they go out with all the same kind of attitudes I had when I started in Oregon. And they're practicing the Samoa system. So uh, they do exactly like you. They, they gather up all the organic matter that they can, and they put it in the soil. And then, because the soil is acid, they add lime. And because, and because if you're going to lime, you may as well put in dolomite lime, because you get Samoa magnesium that way, as well as Samoa calcium, they use dolomite. Sure. I bet you use dolomite. I haven't actually. I really have stick, stuck more to bringing in organic matter and doing heavy amounts of mulching, and I don't do a lot of soil turning. Uh, my view yeah. is that there's creatures down there that if if I keep things covered and healthy, will do the the turning for me, so to speak. So yeah, oh, you're you're right, you're right. Yeah. And not only that, you're in a place where the soil temperature is high enough in the summer that. You get rapid decomposition on that interface between your mulch and your soil. Correct. So, the mulch uh, will go down fairly quickly, especially in the, I would say the, the most rapid decomposition is a mix between the fall, uh, fall winter period and then the late spring when it gets warm, but it's still wet. The summer, uh, it's, it's as dry here as it is, uh, soil wise as it is in, in parts of Texas where I used to live. Yeah, you're practicing a sort of slash and burn agriculture. Well, not really. I'm not burning anything. Uh, no, you're slash, <laughs> slash and grow. <laughs> slash and grow. I mean, because I'm not really taking a lot of stuff out. What I'm doing is pruning and trimming and using those as my my uh, my inputs. I'm trying to do as much with what's on property as possible. So I might go into an area uh, on the edge of, of of my property that has good solar exposure. I might take out four or five. Uh, small, smaller trees for what's there and replace those with fruit trees. And then I'll take, if it's big enough, I'll take some firewood out of it. But the rest of it gets shredded. It goes right back to the ground or it goes to the ground somewhere else. And I keep building that up. And that's been my, that's been, even when I was in Texas, I didn't have anywhere near the land to work with. And I was just using, I think I had about eight beds. 
but I was no. always I've always used wood mulch, and it's always worked beautifully. I've always had people warn me that okay, you're going to have all this nitrogen uptake, but I've never seen it as a sink for nitrogen. It's a trap because it doesn't go away. It goes into the wood and then it's released as the wood breaks down. Well, also you're putting it on the surface. Correct. I, so, do not, I do not turn wood into the soil. If you want to compact soil, turn wood into it. You will compact it. If you want to ruin soil, put a bunch of sawdust into it. Sure. sure. Absolutely. Uh, now, you see, if you were in Cascadia, if you were over where I had been in Oregon, <laughs> I'd probably have a slug farm, right? Yeah. Not only that, <laughs> uh, there were there were no almost almost no nut trees in that forest. Okay. Um, that forest, uh, the soil that grew that forest is so infertile from the point of view of producing animal nutrition that there weren't very many animals in that forest. Uh, and the people who lived there didn't practice any agriculture other than uh, they did grow camas in the clearings. They practiced a sort of permaculture sure. you know, where they, they removed certain undesirable plants in an environment to kind of encourage the ones they wanted, and then they go and gather them once a year. Uh, uh, they did that, and they fished. But I don't personally think they were ignorant of gardening. That this is this is all imagination. But I don't think the Native Americans in Cascadia were ignorant. I think they knew perfectly well that there were people living in other parts of North America that grew things. Uh, I think there was a certain amount of of, of information exchange going on in North America. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, agree with that. Yes. Yeah, a uh, holy man, uh, spiritual guys, or uh, whatever, wandering around. You know, kind of like with a sort of immunity from the usual hostilities. Uh, that maybe did a little trade also. Uh, anyway, if they had ever tried to grow a garden in Cascadia, they would have failed. They would that have might failed be they didn't do it. They probably did try and went. This doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. There's so much leaching. The soil is so infertile uh, that, uh, you know, unless you have access uh, to a lot of fertilizer or you have iron tools, because you've got to realize if you're not in the Iron Age, you can't clear the trees. Sure. Not easily. You can burn fires around the bases of them, and you can kill them, uh, and, you know, you can grow in the gaps between them maybe, but even that's a lot of work. Uh, you can't clear those kinds of forests unless you got iron axes. So uh, the, they didn't have much choice. They had the only place they could have practiced agriculture would be on some of the natural uh, meadows that occur in that country, and those meadows are there because they're the coarsest sandy soil that, after a fire goes through, it's almost impossible for tree seedlings to get started on it. Uh, so they grow grasses and camas. Uh, but I don't think that those would grow vegetables either or any kind of food crops. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Without some I, significant I, modification, I would imagine. You know, listen, I tried to grow quinoa on that soil. Uh, really? When, when I lived down there, uh, I spent some years trying to learn how to grow all the small grains, uh, just exploring complete self-sufficiency. And I had, I had plots of cereal grain. They were around two, three, four thousand square feet each, and I harvested them with hand tools and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I found that I couldn't grow quinoa. That after two years of, of of saving my own seed from my own soil, that the seed from the quinoa ran out. It wouldn't germinate anymore. Hmm. Uh, I didn't have enough mineralization in my soil to grow uh, the kind of nutrition that quinoa required. It's a, one of the most nourishing of all grains. 
Uh, however, there's people over on the other side of the mountains there in, in Washington State uh, who don't have leached soil, and they're commercially growing quinoa no problem, organically growing and supplying a lot of people. Uh, anyway, uh, well, it's been an interesting wander around, hasn't it? Where are yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what are the things I think, I mean, I know we need people to be testing before they make decisions. I kind of always, with anything, I always say you have to know where you're starting from. If you used to ask me how to get to Philadelphia, my first question is, where are you? Because if you're in Florida or you're in New York, there's very different sets of directions I'm going to give you. But I would imagine that there are typical things that people are generally deficient in, and what are some recommended things that you would suggest for amending soil? Uh, well... Let's let's turn that around ever so slightly because I can then finish a line of conversation that got that got lost here. <laughs> uh, most of the soils, uh, Kinsey, the guy who wrote Hands-On Agronomy, uh, says in his book that a majority of soils in the eastern United States have surplus magnesium. Okay. Okay. In other words, you know, if I want to have 65% calcium and 15% magnesium, if the soil comes up, you know, untouched soil uh, and it's got 23% magnesium or 25% magnesium in it already, uh, that that's a problem. So that soil is going to tend to pack tight, especially if it's got much clay in it. And uh, it's and you're a, you're a gardener, so what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you put in a lot of organic matter, and you test the soil. And even though it's got a lot of organic matter, uh, magnesium, it's still going to test acid. It just doesn't have enough calcium. Sure. It, it, yeah. So you put in some lime. And practicing the Samoa system, you put in dolomite lime. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you build the magnesium up higher. So the soil gets even tighter. So you put in more organic matter. <laughs> okay. okay. So... You're now on this treadmill where you keep putting in more magnesium and more organic matter until eventually, after four or five years, you have a, have a soil that instead of having a calcium-magnesium coming up to 80% of the whole thing, it comes up to 93%. And you've got a soil with a pH of 7.2, uh, and it's offering the plants almost nothing but calcium and magnesium, and nothing grows anymore. And then what do you do? You slink away in the dead of night and don't tell anybody because it looks really bad. <laughs> so how do we avoid that? What should people be doing? I mean, that's that's kind of my my question. They should be getting a soil test, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, they should take advantage of of the uh, of what we can do now. Uh, <clears throat> this isn't the 19th century, and. If I've had a lot of people say to me, well, <clears throat> gee, if I get a soil test and I start this remineralization thing and then the shit hits the fan <laughs> and okay. we have a social breakdown, which they're all worrying about. A lot of people who homestead, you know, really are, are, are covert survivalists. Absolutely. You I mean, you know what show you're on. You're on the survival podcast, right? So a Absolutely. And listen, I've been talking to survivalists for a long time, especially since I've been in the seed business. 
<laughs> I've had them approach me with all kinds of business deals. Sure. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> now, the other side of that, though, is we're pretty level-headed here, and we always talk about using the resources that are available while they're available, and that a lot of the things that we prep for from a survival mindset are not necessarily Mad Max, the end of the world, the sun explodes, or something nonsense like that. There are the th more things like you're talking about, like you were struggling to get a business off the ground and you were able to feed yourself. Yeah, uh, I'm trying so to that's survive. That's really where we're at. Yeah, know? I want people to survive in good health and feel good. Sure, <laughs> that's that's what it's really all about. And I mean, uh, how long we're going to live and what's going to take us out? Who knows? I mean, it's certain something is going to. Uh, why worry about it? Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, you know, poke a hay, man. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so I suppose uh, the the first thing that that people should do is get a soil test. Sure. See, there's thousands, millions of people that that have ruined their gardens by by practicing the Samoa system uh, unthinkingly, uh, and they're not in an area with with balanced soil mineralization, uh, which is most people. Uh, you know, in the old days. Um, William Albrecht tells a story uh, about an, uh, how the American government uh, was preparing to go into the Second World War. Uh, and in 1940, uh, they uh, passed a law that had a universal conscription, so they were going to have a draft. And every, every male between the ages of 17 and a half and 26 was ordered to report in and register and get a pre-induction physical. Now, that is an amazing bunch of statistics, if you can mm. think think about that. Sure. Every young man in the United States between the ages of 17 and 26 had a physical, and there's records of it. Wow. Albrecht, Albrecht said that in the northwest corner of the state of Missouri, around Joplin, uh, 200 young men per 1,000 were unfit for military service. In the southeast corner of the state, in the Ozarks, 400 per 1,000 were unfit. Huh. And and in the center of the state, if you draw a diagonal line across the state of Missouri and sort of pick a point in the middle down that diagonal, 300 per 1,000 were unfit. Now, if you'd look at what's called an evapotranspiration map of the United States, in other words, the ratio of rainfall to evaporation, or it tells you how much leaching is happening in the soil, uh, <clears throat> you'd see that up in the northwest corner of Missouri, where they get about 30 inches of rainfall, they have very little leaching. And in the southeast corner of Missouri, they get 80 inches of rainfall, and they get a huge amount of leaching. Now, in 1940, most of the food that most people ate came from within 50 miles of where they lived. So the population of the United States reflected immediately the soil fertility patterns that they were living on. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. Now, in the old days, there were places where people lived long and were healthy, and there were places where people were short-lived and stupid and didn't live very long <laughs> and were sick. Yeah. Yeah. There was Death Smith County, Texas, where nobody had any dental problems. Huh. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Now everybody eats in Safeway. You know? Sure, sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. Right. So it was kind of luck of the draw at that point. If you were in a good area, you had all the good quality nutrients, 
And if you were in a poor area, you had poor quality nutrients. And that's so, what everybody, everybody ate what they had. So when the shit hits the fan, um, if that sort of, if that kind of social breakdown happens, that's what we would go back to. Sure. And, uh, if you had been, uh, gardening with soil testing, you would at least know that, gee, I have a pattern I see now in my soil. I've been testing every year for four or five, six years. I've remineralized it. Uh, and it seems like every year now I have to add a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Sure. And, and the other stuff seems to stay pretty stable. So, gosh, I guess I'll put in a couple hundred pounds of this and 500 pounds of that. You know, and I'll put it in the, in the barn and pack it up so it doesn't get moist. <laughs> Sure, and I mean, you talk about indefinite storage, there's few things that store longer than things like rock dust or calcium carbonate or something like that. I mean, it's basically an indefinite shelf life, so that makes perfect sense to me. We store food, we'll store your, your amendments as well. That's right. However, you get something like zinc sulfate, uh, it, it is a, a naturally uh, absorbs moisture right out of the air and turns itself into a wet slushy slosh. Okay. All by itself. Uh, calcium, uh, calcium nitrate does that too, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, not that gardeners are going to be using calcium nitrate, but they may very well want to have some zinc sulfate put away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So you take extra storage precautions with that to make sure that it's kept dry. Yeah, you want to you want to know what you're storing and what it needs. But uh, if somebody had been doing soil testing, uh, they'd have a much better chance of dealing with that. Uh, the other thing, by the way, uh, <laughs> it's just a story came to mind. I I once had a survivalist guy who, who had a newsletter down in Southern Oregon. He was very prominent back in the early 80s. Uh, no, early 90s. And uh, <clears throat> he contacted me and asked me would I write a little newsletter, uh, a little article for his newsletter about gardening. I said, sure. And I wrote him a couple articles. And then he came to me and he said, I'd like to sell all my readers uh, a sealed tin of vegetable seeds so that they can uh, uh, dig them up from under the house and use them when they need them someday in the future. And would you do that for me? I said, be a lot of money here. He said, I want hundreds of these packets, hmm. uh, you know, sealed up. I said, no. <laughs> he said, why? I said, because... I said, if I ever was the guy who did that, and then come the time that they needed to use those seeds, if I happened to be around, I said, I'd find myself hanging from a rope on a tree trunk. <laughs> I said, they would execute me. <laughs> uh, he said, why? I said, because the stuff wouldn't grow. I said, you don't understand. I can't tell you how long any seed on my shelf is going to last. Because I don't know when it was harvested. I only know when I bought it. I got you. And, and I don't know how long the germination is going to last. The best I can tell you is I know what it is today. Now, the best I can tell you is that if the number is pretty high today, it will probably last a fairly long time. But <laughs> it isn't always that way. Uh, uh, if you can imagine, the seed business is one of those businesses that is extremely easy to cheat in. Uh, you're, you're dealing with these little specks, you know. 
And and they all look the same. A pack of specks that won't germinate looks exactly the same as a pack of specks that will germinate. <laughs> sure. And and what those little specks grow, you don't even know for months. You know, after you put them in the ground. Uh, so you don't even know if you're growing what you hope for until you actually start to get some size on the thing. Uh, I said so. Uh, I said when I buy a bag of seeds, I said I have no idea. Uh, what its remaining storage life is. I've been very cleverly cheated a few times by, by big seed companies who sold me a bag of seeds that was teetering on the edge of catastrophic falling apart. Oh, wow. but, it still, but it still had enough germination that it passed the test. It was a bit on the low side, but it was okay. Uh, it's kind of it was a kale seed in this particular case. It was okay it, this year, right? But yeah, it was okay when they tested it and sent yeah. it to me. It was 83%. Okay. What I didn't know was that if you took six months test results on that bag of seed, they probably look like this. 97, 97, 96, 96, 95, 95, 95, 95, 94, 82. Yeah, it was going over. I know what you're talking about. That's what happens a lot of times with a seed. It'll germinate well, and then it, it craters. It hits like a point where, okay, now it's in catastrophic decline. That's right. So 82... Gee, let's sell some of that seed to that guy who sells it to gardeners out in Oregon. Yeah. You don't know the difference. Yeah. Gardener's not a, the gardener is not a critical trade. You can sell the gardener the sweepings of the seed room floor, unquote. Mm. That's from a big seed company executive told me that. I don't doubt that for a minute. That's why I like to deal with smaller family-owned operations. I, I really do. Um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned Johnny's. um Victory Seed, uh, we actually have a deal for our listeners with them. Uh, Big yeah. High Mowing, Peaceful Valley, yes, for all companies I've done business with, and I've always had great results. Yes, I'm very impressed with High Mowing. I think they, they, they look terrific. Uh, oh, and by the way, since we're mentioning, there's a little seed company uh, that I just discovered in Oregon. Is my sound quality okay? Yeah, you're good. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a there's a little seed company in Oregon I just discovered called Adaptive Seeds. Very good. And uh, I just managed to get uh, five or six packets from them, uh, and I'm trialing them this summer. And they're doing a really good job. Uh, there there are a lot of small seed companies that grow their own seed uh, that should be uh, they shouldn't be in business. <laughs> Uh, there, uh, uh, we're going to get into another sensitive area here, uh, where again I'm probably going to offend some people. But there's a, there's a, a, a lot of interest right now in heirloom seeds. And uh, a tremendous amount of propaganda coming out, uh, that's anti-Monsanto, anti-Seminus, uh, anti-GM, uh, and it's used as a justification or reason to do this other thing. Uh, also, there, there is some truth to the idea that the heirloom vegetable varieties that we have are much more nutritious than the modern stuff. Uh, and I think there is something to that. Uh, I don't know whether to get into that in a second or maybe try to get back to it. But... In any case, uh, the truth of the matter is that, number one, we don't have any heirlooms. <laughs> okay? They're gone. Uh, it, 
Now, that's not true of beans and tomatoes. But when it comes to species that outcross, where pollen is routinely exchanged between individual plants to make seeds, and they're heirlooms, they're gone. Okay? And the reason they're gone is that to maintain a outcrossing variety, uh, you've got to have a significant plant population when you grow the seeds. If you get down to just a few plants, you lose most of the genes. You see, open-pollinated varieties are not uniform. Open-pollinated varieties are really a collection of similar hybrids. Can you see that? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. A good open-pollinated variety is a whole lot of hybrids that are very similar, that are always crossing back and forth with each other. And it is this crossing, this exchange of genes, that creates uh, the vigor and if you don't have it, if you have all uniform genetics, uh, a very limited genetic possibilities in a variety, it becomes very weak. It'll barely grow. It ceases to be productive. I mean, it's uh, why we don't marry our sisters, right? I mean, among other reasons, we need genetic diversity. I, I've talked actually a lot about how no one needs to fear hybrids. Uh, they, they're making, and what I'm saying as a conventional hybrid, yeah, okay, it's not the plant that you want to be saving your own seed from, but it is not a genetic modified organism as in Monsanto gene stacking soy so that we can spray it with Roundup. Those, those two worlds are completely different from each other. Abs absolutely. The world of hybrid vegetable varieties has nothing to do with the world of genetically modified uh, staple crops. It's absolutely. all different. In fact, even with GMOs, people kind of get weird on me a little bit with this. They, you know, think I, because I'm very much an anti-Monsanto guy, but I'm not that concerned about genetically modifying the seed itself. My concern is what the seeds are being genetically modified to do. So I agree. I agree. Gen yeah. Genetic modification is a tool. Correct. <clears throat> But when you genetically like modify it to be sprayed with, with glyphosate or atrazine, I absolutely know that's not good for me, right? And if you spray yeah. a plant with that that's genetically adapted to, um, to survive it, then I, it's not like something you've put on the plant that I can wash off. off. It's, been, it's been saturated into the soil, taken up into the plant, deposited into the fruit or the seed that I'm consuming, and now I'm eating glyphosate. That's my problem with GMOs. Yes. Uh, by the way, have you heard about what happens to the Indian peasants growing GM cotton and GM corn? I've heard of them killing themselves, if that's what you're that's, talking about. It's, it's, not only are they killing themselves <laughs> it's, it's because of what happens after they try to do it, yeah. but it, it kills them. Uh, the, the pollen from BT corn is toxic. And Correct. When you, when you breathe it, you get sick. <laughs> yeah. doesn't surprise me. Yeah, um, and uh, but anyway, uh, the uh, the heirlooms that we've got around today are in a state of extreme degradation. Mm. Uh, yeah, the the only thing wrong with the hybrid varieties, uh, with all of our vegetable varieties, in fact, is that uh, starting about. 1870 or 1880, we began selecting vegetable varieties for success in the marketplace rather than for good taste. Uh, now, I owe this 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 thought uh, to uh, a guy named Mushroom, uh, Alan Capular, 
uh, who runs the Peace Seed Company in Oregon. And he's a man of about my age. I've been knowing Mushroom for a lot of years. Uh, he was uh, one of the original dropouts from, from the Harvard uh, <laughs> elite scientific crowd around the time of Timothy Leary, which is how he got the acronym Mushroom. Uh, anyway, Alan said to me one night, he said, in the old days, he said, the vegetables were all different. Every family had its own vegetable varieties and its own grain varieties, and they saved their own seed. And all those varieties differed in terms of their nutritional content. And some of them were uh, produced far more human, nutri human nutrition than others. And the families who grew those varieties, their babies tended to survive the gauntlet of childhood disease and carried on the family's varieties. And those families that had the poor varieties, their children tended to die out. So over, you know, over time, uh, our vegetable varieties were selected for keeping the babies alive. Hmm. For, for producing Whether we health. intended to or not, that was the net result. That was the net result. And so uh, over thousands of years, we had developed a, you know, a, a basket of food crops that had a high nutritional content, or had a high nutrient density. Uh, and then about the time that you know, farming became an industrial commercial activity, uh, we started scientific plant breeding. But the goal was wrong. <laughs> That's all. It's just like GM, genetic modification. If we had the goal of, of producing a higher nutritional content and longer life and health for people, it might be useful. Correct. Uh, yeah. Correct. Uh, but the goal yeah. is make it look good, make it sell, make it cheap. That's... That, that's, yeah. that we can sum the entire agenda up with that. Make it cheap to grow, make it cheap to produce, make it cheap to sell, and make it look good to the eye so people will buy it. Sure. Or take, take, uh, I, I like to make the analogy with GM, uh, with logging. Okay. Uh, in the old days, we went out and we logged the hills with oxen and saws and axes. And it, it took a long time. And we eventually we completely destroyed the entire forest of the eastern United States. It's all gone. Uh, the only ever bit of it I've ever seen was the Lost Forty up in northern Minnesota, where there's an overlooked 40-acre plot of old growth stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's not the much. There's a, there's a really neat place in Tennessee as well that was never touched. It's um, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's a, like a preserve, and uh, yeah. it's about 30 acres. And there are oak trees there that were probably growing when some of the first white people ever stepped in the state of Tennessee. And I don't think, yeah, there's probably not much, yeah, there's not much difference in that forest and the Brazilian rainforest. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's it's um it's etherical to stand in an old growth forest like that. It 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 feels differently from like almost an energy level. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> No, I got lost again. That's okay. We've been doing I'm sure that. Glad, I'm sure glad you could edit this, Jack. We do need to kind of wrap up here. We're, we're about 15 minutes over our normal time. Uh, oh, that's fun. That's good. <laughs> but it is good, and it's it's nice that we're not on the radio. We're on the internet, so that doesn't really harm us or anything. Um, yeah. But man, we could you and I could probably sit here and, and share stories for another four or five hours. But we do need to wrap up. I do want to make sure people can find your website. You want to tell everybody where that is again? Yeah, uh, it's called Soil and Health Library, uh, and uh, the URL is 
Soil and Health, all together, S-O-I-L-A-N-D-H-E-A-L-T-H dot org, O-R-G. Great. And I'll, of course, as always, when I have a guest on, there's show notes that go along with the episode. So if you guys go by the survivalpodcast.com, there'll be links, uh, to anything that I can find on that, or actually to, to that site. That's, I think, the only site I have, uh, from you to link to, but I always put links out there. Uh, it's been really interesting. And I think the big takeaway here, folks, is go get a soil test and don't get the little $5 one you do yourself at Home Depot that gives you NPK. Get a full spectrum analysis of your soil from, and have from Logan Labs. Yeah, let's get multiple tests. I get it from Logan Labs. If you get the wrong soil test, you, it's just like having the wrong target for breeding plants. <laughs> you and what company is that? Because I'll put a link to their site in the show notes as well. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward, Jack, to well, seeing your team real quick, results. Steve, what's the, what's the name of that company you said? London? Logan. Yeah, Logan Labs. L-O-G-A-M. Okay, I'll, I'll make sure we have a, a link to Logan Labs in the uh, in the show notes as well then. Hey, man, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for uh, getting up early. I know it's like 5 a.m. when we when I called you over uh, in, in uh, Australia time there, man. I think you might be the longest distance interview I've ever done. No worries, mate. Call me up anytime. It's fun <laughs> talking to you. All right, and uh, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up today. This has been Jack Spirico along with Steve Solomon, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Revolution is you